We are in a series of messages on what can be described as Jesus' favorite book. He quotes out of the book of Deuteronomy during his three-year public ministry, as much as, if not more than any other book of the Old Testament, it's rich, it's full of incredible insight on a host of different subjects. And while time will not permit us to cover every single verse and every single word, we will hit a great majority of the themes that are contained here in this fifth book of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then the book of Deuteronomy. Today we want to talk for a few minutes about first priorities, particularly as they relate to times of new beginnings in our lives. Life is indeed a series of transitions. God will give us mountaintop experiences from time to time, but oftentimes, as was the case even with the disciples and the Lord Jesus himself, there is a time that we come off the mountaintop. And coming off the mountaintop often means going down into a very deep, dark, dangerous, shadowy valley. And that will be the course of life. High points marked by some low points, followed by high points again. And how you handle those great times of success in your life. Maybe you've been in a period of wilderness wandering, so to speak, like the nation of Israel for nearly four decades of their existence. And then God brings you out of the shadows into the light once again. And there's a great time of renewal. There's a great time of refreshment. There's a great time of success. How you handle that is very important for you personally in your spiritual life, for your family, for your church, uh, and for your relationship with the Lord. So we're gonna talk for a few minutes today about first priorities in times of new beginnings. One of my favorite leaders of all, particularly in the 20th century, was the two-time prime minister of Great Britain whose name was Winston Churchill. Churchill was one of the most intelligent leaders in the history of the world. He was well-read, well-educated, well-schooled, well-bred. And he was a master of the English language. Uh, he is literally an encyclopedia of quotes. Entire books have been published just of the important quotations of Sir Winston Churchill. One of those quotations I have written in the flyleaf of my preaching Bible. It's written in red ink because it has spoken to me in a number of seasons of my life through the years. And the quote simply says this, success is never final, failure is never fatal. What counts is the courage to continue. Did you get it? Success is never final, failure is never fatal. What counts is the courage to continue. Churchill made that quote at the end of World War II, 1945. He was the wartime prime minister of Great Britain for the period of World War II, 1940 to 1945. And he led the nation to victory even though they had overwhelming odds against them. He did it by the power of the English language primarily. He was a master motivator. And yet the reality was that in 1945, not long after the end of World War II, when there was a national election, Winston Churchill was voted out of office. The wartime leader was given the boot by the people who wanted different kind of leadership 
for a peacetime future. And yet, Churchill, who was very familiar with failure throughout most of his adult life, lived this very quotation when a brief five years later he stood again as an old man for re-election and the people once again elected him as prime minister where he would serve for another five years until he finally retired from public life. As we learned a little bit about the nation of Israel here in Deuteronomy chapter three, one of the things that we have found is that it was a nation that was acquainted with failure. I mean, the lesson of failure not having to be fatal was a lesson that Israel needed to learn themselves. 38 years earlier, <clears throat> the nation had failed miserably when God, who had freed them for 400 years of slavery to the Egyptians, was taking them to the land that he had promised them as a people, what we sometimes call the promised land, the land of Canaan, modern day Israel, a land that was rich and bountiful, flowing with milk and honey. They got right to the precipice of the southern border of the promised land. And rather than conquer it in great fear, trusting the promises of God that it was theirs by divine right, the nation cowered in fear, seeing the land as one of fortified cities mastered by fortified men. There are giants in the land and we come across as grasshoppers in their sight. We don't stand a chance. And God judged them for their time of disobedience by turning them around and sending them back into the desert where they would literally wander in circles for nearly 40 years. But here in their most recent history, as Moses is speaking this word to them from Deuteronomy chapter three, the reality is they're going to learn that failure doesn't have to be fatal if they have the courage to trust God and to continue their journey walking by faith. God gives them two great victories. If y'all were here last week, then you know that God gives them two remarkable victories after this 40-year period of wandering aimlessly in the desert. And they're taken to a brand new place where the promised land was right there before them and theirs for the taking. You know, the thing about success is success can be a really tricky thing because it's often deceitful. Success can lure you into thinking that you did it it can lure you into thinking that you're independent and that you don't need any other help and that you can accomplish anything totally alone and all by your own creativity, ingenuity, strength, power, and might. Success can be deceptive. It's been said the greatest threat to tomorrow's success is what? Today's success. So you have to be very, very careful. And when you do succeed, when God brings you to the threshold of a brand new beginning, I think we all do well to take stock and to identify some critical priorities that got you there to begin with. Three critical things that are highlighted here at the end of Deuteronomy chapter three, critical priorities for God's people in that generation and in every generation. Y'all ready to look at them this morning? Would you say amen? When you find yourself at the threshold of a new beginning, 
The first priority that you should never forget is the priority of community. The priority of community. The fact that you didn't get to any particular place in time all by yourself. We are all here, the product of the investment that other people have made into our lives. We're here as the product of the investment of our mothers and our fathers. We're here as the products of the investment of our family, as products of the investment of our church and others within the communities in which we have lived. None of us is created to live as an island unto himself, as an island unto herself. God creates his people to live and to move and to have their being, not in isolation, but as a family, as a community of faith. In fact, here at Hillcrest, this idea of connecting in community is one of our critical core values. Our mission at Hillcrest is to help people in becoming like Christ, people who worship God, connect with others, and serve the world. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is by God's design to be experienced as a family because God's people worship better, God's people serve better, God's people grow better when they do it together. Here in Deuteronomy chapter three, we see the priority of the community placed front and center in terms of how Moses deals with an issue that kind of crops up out of nowhere. As I mentioned a moment ago, we looked last Sunday at two critical victories just prior to the nation of Israel entering into the promised land and taking it by conquest. God led them on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which was not the promised land, but he leads them through a time of critical obedience to two incredible victories that were monumentally significant in giving them both position in the land and confidence for the bigger obstacles that lay ahead. And after these victories over these two kingdoms, Heshbon and Bashan, Moses says to the people here in Deuteronomy 3 and verse 12, when we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. In other words, the land of the giants, the last of the aboriginal giants that lived in that part of the Middle East at that time. We get a fuller picture of what Moses is talking about here in the book of Numbers, right before Deuteronomy, Numbers chapter 32 to be precise. But basically, here's the background of what Moses is talking about. Once those two kingdoms, Heshbon and Bashan, along with their kings, had been conquered, once they've been defeated by the Israelites, three of the 12 tribes of Israel, there are 12 tribes that compose the nation of Israel, and three of those 12 tribes, really, really two and a half, come to Moses and they request a portion of the land that they had just conquered to be given to them on the eastern side of the Jordan River prior to the conquest of the promised land. Oh, it was a good land, but it wasn't part of the promised land. It was on the wrong side of the Jordan River. 
But once they'd conquered these lands, and God intended them to conquer them so that they could be positioned strategically to enter into the land with the greatest uh, of, 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 uh, of strategic value. But once they saw these lands that they had conquered, two and a half of these tribes say, you know what, we could live here. This pretty good stuff going on. These three tribes, Reuben and Gad and half of the tribe of Manasseh who were the descendants of the great Joseph, the Bible says they were rich in livestock. And they saw this fertile land. They saw that it was wide open. They saw that it, it provided for them everything that they needed. Why do we need to go any further? This land is perfect for grazing our herds. So they go to Moses, who's the leader of the people, and they jump on the property. And the bottom line is Moses gives them the land but only with conditions. Because Moses, you know what Moses is concerned about? Moses is concerned about tribalism. Moses is concerned about these 12 tribes looking out for what was best for them at the expense for, of what was best for the entire nation. I mean, that'll preach in the United States right now, amen. Because if we're not careful, we're gonna divide up into tribes special interests, ethnic tribes, whatever the case might be. And we're gonna see that as more important than us together. You know, our national motto is e pluribus unum, from the many one. And I read not long ago an author that said the problem in America today is that we've got too much pluribus and not enough unum. Amen. And Moses was guarding against that very thing right here. And so he lays out the conditions. He says, okay, you want this property? You can have it. But here's the condition, chapter three, verse 18. And I commanded you at that time saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess. So with that statement, we believe Moses had prayed about it. He believed it was God's will. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land that your Lord, uh, the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. Now, if you look at the companion passage in Numbers chapter 32, Moses says it even more starkly there in Numbers 32, 6. Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? You see the condition? I'm gonna lift, let you have this land that's already been conquered, but you still have to fight. You still have to put the nation first. In fact, you gotta lead the invasion, truth be told. You gotta take up arms, and you've got to pave the way and you've got to fight until the land is conquered and until the land is allocated. And only at that point, when your brothers have rest and when your brothers have received their tribal allotment, can you then go back to your cattle, your herds, and your families. And the tribe says, you know what, Mose, we'll do it. Count on us, we will fight. And you know what Moses says to them there in Numbers 32? You better because if you don't, you have sinned against the Lord 
and be sure your sin will what? Find you out. That's right. Have y'all heard that statement before? Be sure your sin will find you out. How many of you knew that it was in the context of this tribal distribution of land? Now, what this story highlights is a principle called corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity. And that's something that's important to God's people in every generation. We need to hear it often. We need to hear it regularly. We need to hear it frequently. Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are a family. We need each other, and we are better when we are together. That's a lesson that our country needs to hear. It's true in our own generation, where individualism rules the day. We are so very busy in the United States of America, and we are so very much alone. So isolated today, even when we do connect, we don't wanna do it flesh to flesh. We don't want to do it face to face. We want to connect behind a computer. We want to connect behind a smartphone. We don't have to touch. We don't have to observe responses. We don't want to have to embrace. We don't want to have to be accountable. We'll connect behind a computer. We'll just take advantage of trying to be together by not being together. We often do that in church. We provide an online broadcast, and I'm thankful that we're able to do it. But the thing about an online broadcast is that sometimes people fall into bad habits with an online broadcast. We do an online broadcast for people when they can't be here. Like when they're sick with 180 degree fever, that kind of thing. We, we do an online broadcast for when you're traveling and when you're on vacation or when you've got a critical moment in your family and something else is going on that just prohibits you from worshiping together from doing as the Bible says and not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. That's what we do it for. Now, don't anybody get mad at me, particularly those of you that are watching this morning. I am Jim, I am your friend, all right? <laughs> We're here for you at Hillcrest. And nobody's gonna come knocking on your door either, by the way. No, but here's the thing. How easy it is to devolve into bad habits and you think, well, you know what, it's not such a bad deal. Being able to worship, not having to change out of your pajamas and able to eat a jelly donut between songs. <laughs> How cool is that, right? No, that's not what it's for. And if you're doing that, there's somebody need to repent and get right with the Lord. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Corporate solidarity matters to the people of God. Sometimes we can be together and fellowship be broken, even when we're together. Paul writes at the beginning of his first letter to the Corinthians, they were in tribal factions at Corinth, and he admonishes them. Here's what I found out y'all are doing. Some of you say you're following Apollos, and some of you say you're following Peter, and then there are others that say you're following Paul, and there's a problem with that because the last time I checked, we in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ ought not to be following after any human leader in particular. We're all supposed to be together following Christ. We're supposed to follow Christ because unless we're doing that, we will never row the gospel ship in a unified fashion in the same direction and we will limit if not totally mitigate our effectiveness in ministering that gospel to a lost community far from God. 
No, the Bible describes us as living stones that God designs not to live in isolation, but to be submitted together as he builds up a spiritual house called a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Each of us are individual bricks, but you ever thought about what good an individual brick is by itself? I mean, I guess you could use it as a paperweight. I, I guess you could put it on the floor and use it as a doorstop. I mean, if I had an individual brick up here, I'd be tempted to throw it at some of you, especially those that are nodding off in the middle of the preacher's sermon, you know. I mean, individual bricks, I guess, have a purpose. But how much better when you take one brick and connect it to another and connect it to another and connect it to another and another? Man, you connect enough bricks together, you can stop a 150 mile an hour wind. And that's what God designs to do with his people because we are better together. We are a one another faith. We're to love one another, serve one another, minister to one another, support one another, bear one another's burdens, admonish one another. In a time of new beginnings, when God brings you to a new place, never neglect the priority of community. A second thing we see in Deuteronomy 3 is the priority of worship. When God brings you to a new place, see, it's easy to worship God when things are going south in your life. That's when we need to come to church, man. We need God to get things turned around in our life. And yet when the flowers start to bloom again and when money's in the bank and all that good stuff, how easy it is to forget the Lord. Verses 23 through the end of the chapter is a very honest prayer offered by Moses. It's a prayer that we can see Moses is clearly, even as an old man, He's awestruck by the presence of God. He's worshiping the greatness of God. He's seen God. He Listen, he's been with his people wandering in the desert for almost four decades. And now all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, God says, start walking north again. It's time to quit walking in circles, walk north again. And he sees God speak very clearly. He sees the people obey God. He sees God's mighty hand at work again and two monumental victories against all odds. And he worships the greatness of God. Verse 23, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, oh Lord God, You have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty works, mighty acts as yours? You know, connect is one of our core values at Hillcrest. Hillcrest exists to help people in becoming like Christ by helping people connect with others. But also worship is a core value. In fact, it's actually the first one that we mention. We're here to help people in becoming like Christ, people who worship God. And you know why we list it first? Because it's the most important. It's the most important core value of a believer's life. Worshiping God is life's highest priority. And I mean, for these graduates today, 
That's a lesson that you can take home with you. There's nothing more important in your life than the priority of worshiping God. Because as we're gonna find out here in just a little bit, Deuteronomy chapter four, Deuteronomy chapter five, the 10 commandments which are repeated in Deuteronomy five. God is what kind of God? God is a jealous God, that's right. Jealous for his glory. Not jealous in the way that we're often jealous of other people. Not jealous as in envious, but righteously jealous for his glory. God demands that we are people who give uh, our greatest loyalty to him, our greatest allegiance. He longs to be the focus of our greatest attention and the object of our greatest affection. Success can sometimes be a challenge because part of the problem with success, if you're not careful, it will lead to self-sufficiency. It will lead to a spirit of independence. Success can blind you to your need for God. But the thing we love about Moses is that it, it, had a, it, it didn't dull Moses' sense of urgency to connect with God. He prays here deeply and earnestly by acknowledging that God is worth it, which is what worship is. It's declaring the magnificence of God, the worthiness of God. In fact, the worship of Moses is marked by three obvious elements here, and they're things that ought to mark our worship every time we come together. They ought to mark our corporate worship. They ought to mark our private worship, our devotional worship of God. First, in worship, we acknowledge the supremacy of God, God's supremacy. Moses learned the name of God for the first time 40 years prior to writing these words in Deuteronomy 3, there at the burning bush, where God had called him to be the leader of his people, to lead them out of this condition of slavery and bondage. And Moses told God, I don't even know who you are. I don't even know your name. Who shall I tell them is sending me? And God identifies himself by name to Moses by saying, tell them Yahweh sent them to you. Yahweh God, I am. Just tell them I am has sent them to you. And now 40 years later, as Moses prays this urgent prayer to God, he begins it by addressing God by his name. Oh, Lord God. In Hebrew, that's literally Yahweh Adonai. Lord God. The NIV says, oh, sovereign Lord. He is Yahweh. The great I am. The Lord of heaven and earth. And Moses not only recognizes the supremacy of God as he prays in this time of worship. He not only comes to understand who God is. But he also is reminded who he is. He identifies himself as your servant. And that's the thing about worship. When you're truly worshiping God, you'll come away from that experience knowing two things, who God is and who you're not. He is sovereign Lord, I am not. I am merely a humble servant who doesn't even, be, uh, doesn't even deserve to be in the presence of the holiness of God. So true worship always results in an awareness of God's greatness 
and an awareness of our lowliness. But not only do we acknowledge God's supremacy, when we truly worship, we acknowledge God's power. How many of you this morning need the awesome power of God in your life? Well, it seems like never before. There's so many challenges that we face in life. Moses needed the power of God. I mean, he just sensed it. He'd just seen it in this time of desert victory. Remember, Israel is still in the wilderness. They're not in the promised land yet. And yet God had given them two mighty military victories. And he says in verse 24, Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your greatness and your mighty hand. See, the first generation, the generation before this particular generation, they had seen the greatness and the power of God. The only problem is it hasn't given them deep faith. I mean, the generation that had died off in the wilderness, that was the generation that saw God split the Red Sea for crying out loud. And yet, whenever they would face an obstacle, whenever they would face a dark cloud, whenever they would face uh, a circumstance in which they felt imperiled, rather than being motivated by the power of God in their past, they became captivated by the fear of the circumstances of their present. But in the wake of this time of victory, this new generation determined to be different. They weren't gonna magnify the size of their enemies anymore. They made a decision to acknowledge the power of God. So when we worship, we acknowledge God's supremacy. We acknowledge God's power. But also in worship, we acknowledge God's uniqueness. The fact that he alone is God, as Moses will say in Deuteronomy 4. And beside him, there is no other. God has no rival. God has no real adversary. He is the unique God of heaven and earth. And Moses asked the question in verse 24, for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? And the answer to that question is what, church? Say it out loud, none, none. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is going to caution the nation against embracing other gods. He said, you're going, to, you're going to walk into territories and you're going to walk among people that worship all kinds of gods. And it's going to be a dangerous temptation for you to assimilate some of those alongside God. And you better be careful in doing that because it'll be to your ruin. The nation of Israel had 400 years of history living in Egypt. The ancient Egyptians were like the modern country of India. They just turn everything into a God, right? I mean, if it moves and it breaks, oh, God, there it is. Bow down and worship it. And that's what happened in Egypt. I mean, cats, dogs, crocodiles, snakes, bulls, and all of those things were reduced down into images that could be carved or images that could be painted. All of that, of course, is an attempt to control your gods. And that's always an offense to God, the true and the living God. And you think, man, I'm so thankful we don't have it like that anymore. Let me just say, the only thing that distinguishes a man and a boy is the price of his toys. And the only thing really that distinguishes us from many in Egypt is the kind of gods we worship. 
They carved theirs. We don't. But those foreign gods are there. And they will be a lure and a thorn in your side if you're not careful. What I love about the introduction of this prayer is the revelation that even at age 120, Moses 120 years old when he's writing Deuteronomy, Moses wants more of God. Can you imagine that? 120 years old, you think he'd have God figured out by this time. And yet he says, you have only begun to show your greatness. You've only just begun and I want to know more. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter three, who's in prison, himself an old man, not as old as Moses, but he's probably in his early to mid 60s when he's writing Philippians. And you know what he says? I haven't arrived. Not that I've arrived, not that I've attained all of this, but I press on to the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. I want to gain Christ. I want to know Christ. I want to become like Christ. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have that kind of a longing for the greatness and the power of God Aging men like Moses and Paul never lost their longing to know God more deeply, more fully, and more completely. I'm telling you, when God brings you to a time of new beginnings, make sure that you never lose not only the priority of community, but the priority of genuine worship of the one true God of heaven and earth. And then finally, a third priority that's very clear in this passage, that you should always keep a bulldog grip on in a time of new beginnings is the priority of submission. The priority of submission. Now there's a happy word to end our morning together, amen? And yet, can I make a statement this morning? There is no true worship apart from submission. Worship doesn't happen unless you're submitted to a holy God. You're just going through religious motions. That's not worship. There's no true worship apart from submission. There's no discipleship. There's no Christian growth apart from submission. There's no salvation apart from submission. Whosoever would be saved must surrender. If any man would come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow. You can't be saved without total and complete submission to a Christ who is Lord. Now, here's the thing about Moses. He's worshiping the Lord here, but the one area that Moses is having trouble with is submission. He's struggling with it right here. Moses is struggling. I mean, you can feel the urgency in Moses' voice as he pleads with the Lord in verse 25. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. He's literally begging the Lord here to let him walk in to the promised land. Remember, God had forbidden even Moses from going in along with the rest of that first generation. 
because during the time of wilderness wandering, Moses disobeyed God. It was a failure of faith when he, in anger, struck the rock with his rod instead of obeying God completely and speaking to the rock. God says, you didn't believe me. Therefore, you will lead this people to the precipice of the land, but you'll never walk into it. You'll be like the first generation. You will die before entering the land. And now he's asking God, 120-year-old man, having done most everything with great faithfulness, God, just let me go in. Let me, let me step foot in. Maybe Moses is getting a little bit of courage to ask this specific question request because he's seen God give the people these two great victories. Man, God should have just killed us all out in the desert. Now he's brought us back. And man, the strength and power of God has been revealed. God has shown mercy. God has demonstrated power. God has demonstrated favor. And if God can do this for the nation, maybe God can be gracious and merciful to an old man. Maybe God can relent. Oh, Moses had seen God relent before. God had determined he was going to judge his people and Moses stood in the gap between an angry God and a desperate people and said, oh no, God, I plead on their behalf. Make your name great by being merciful and forgiving. And on more than one occasion, God what? Relented. And so maybe Moses is thinking, if God could relent then, maybe he can relent on my part. Now, but God said no. God said no. And it was not for this humble servant, as Moses had already identified himself, it was not for the servant to argue. It was not for the servant to reason why. It was for the servant to salute and say, yes, Lord, thy will be done. It's not always easy to do. Submission is hard. Verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me because of you. Again, Moses is preaching to the people. That's kind of a half truth there. That's passing the buck. I mean, there's a kernel of truth there because had the people obeyed God the first time, Moses would have never disobeyed God in the desert. So Moses is kind of saying, if y'all had just been obedient to begin with, none of this would have happened and I'd already be in the land. The Lord was angry with me because of you. And yet Moses is just as culpable as the first generation. More to the point, Moses says, the Lord would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. Look at it with your eyes for you shall not go over this Jordan. But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him for he shall go over at the head of this people and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. See, behind Moses' specific request about himself, what Moses failed to realize here is that God has broader interest in the works. 
Every time you ask a, a request or God to do something for you, it always involves other people, whether you're thinking about them or not. And God is communicating something to the people by telling Moses, no, name, you know what he's communicating to the people? Sin matters to me. This is a time of new beginnings in you. It's kind of like the same thing that God did when he struck down Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of the church age there in Acts chapter five. Struck them dead, why? Because they lied to the people and they lied to the spirit of God and God wanted the whole church community to know, I take sin very seriously. And that's what's happening here with Moses. He wants to send, God does a message to the people when you get into this land, you need to make sure you obey. But God also has Joshua in mind too. Moses had done what he was supposed to do. Moses had served his purpose. And God was at work in new leadership for a new generation. Now we're not given all the whys here, but what we can know is that by saying no to Moses, God was warning his people of the consequences of sin and God was using Moses in the latter stage of his life to develop critical leadership for the future. Let me ask you a question this morning. How, how typically do you react when God's will results in God's no to you? It's not the only time this happens in scripture. David wanted to build a temple to God. And God said, no, it's gonna be Solomon. Paul begged the Lord multiple times, remove this thorn from my flesh. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. The man that was possessed by the legion of demons begged Jesus, let me go with you. And the Lord said, no. You go back home and tell everybody in your village what the Lord has done for you. Behind every personal request, God is always at work and God always has others in mind. And he's working in ways that we can't always see and don't always understand. Sometimes the, thing we th the things that we seek for ourselves, not always wise, not always the best. And that's why genuine worship is so important because when you truly worship God, he's revealed as sovereign. You understand your role as the servant and the role of the servant is to always what? Submit to the sovereign. Moses wouldn't make it to the promised land, but let me tell you something better. Y'all still with me say amen. He would make it to heaven. Somebody say amen. And part of our problem here on this earth is we try to turn it into heaven and the earth is not heaven. This world is not heaven. This nation is not heaven. Heaven is heaven. And it's a better land in a better place in which we as children of God will spend eternity. That's a good thing to remember. The next time God says, I love you, but no. 
The greatest obstacle to tomorrow's success is today's success. And so when God brings you to a time of new beginnings, my counsel this morning, don't let it go to your head. Stay committed to the priorities that got you here to begin with. Priorities that lead to the blessing of God in every season of life. Connect in community. Worship the Lord as sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. And be willing to submit to God even in those times where God says no and where his will is not what you yourself would have always ordered up. Trust the Lord and God will take you once again to a really good place in his way and in his time. This is God's word and all God's people said.